we probably all would have been here on time today if we would have just run to church. <laughs> Although that might create a whole new set of problems. A number of years ago, I uh, officiated at a wedding that kind of for me goes down as, as my favorite one ever. It was um, on a beach in uh, North San Diego County. And uh, the, an area of the beach had been cordoned off by the lifeguards. They ran ropes to accommodate the crowd that would show up. About 400 people were coming to the wedding. And uh, there was all these people sunbathing on the beach when they did that, and they had to move. And they were grouchy about having to move. Protested, but the lifeguards said, no, we've got a permit for this, everything will be fine. And so everybody showed up to the wedding, and uh, we had a generator-powered sound system so people could hear stuff. And I did my little homily, the typical homily I would do at a wedding. And as was my custom, I, I read the entirety of 1 Corinthians 13, what we typically call the love chapter. And when the wedding was over, I, we were gathering our stuff and heading to our cars to go to the reception, and I was approached by a, a young woman who was just part of the beach crowd. And she, along with a number of others, after they got over their grouchiness, kind of moved in close to see what was going on. It was very interesting, but she ran up to me. Uh, turns out she was on holiday from South Africa, and she said how much she appreciated my message. And she said, you know, people talk about love all the time, but they never talk about what it really is. And, and yet when you spoke your little talk thing that you did, you, you defined love, and I really appreciate your words. Well, not being one who would ever want to plagiarize the scriptures, I said, well, do you, do you know where that's from? And uh, she said, no. I said, it's from the Bible. And she said, well, oh. like, you know, great. Um, and, uh, and she thanked me again very warmly and, and just ran away. Never saw her again. But, you know, I've thought about that over the years, and, and she's really, she really made the right observation, didn't she? That people do talk about love all the time, sing about love all the time. But what do they really mean when they say it? And it appears that this was a fairly significant issue in this letter that we call 1 John. And clearly, as we heard in the gospel reading, it was important to Jesus as well. In, uh, in the three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same basic scenario is played out. One of the religious elites asks the question about the greatest commandment, apparently in order to test Jesus, perhaps to even trip him up just a bit. And uh, the inquirer, of course, gets a lot more than he asked for. Rather, Jesus, rather than just answering the question as was demanded of him, he, he offers up not just one commandment that would simply validate him as a teacher or perhaps put him at odds with the other religious leaders. Instead, he takes two commandments and links them together almost as if they are one, loving God and loving one's neighbor. And on top of that, he claims that all of the law and the prophets, the, all of the Jewish scriptures, what we would refer to as the Old Testament, are summed up in these commandments of love. Now, of course, even having heard this, throughout the ages, people have still attempted to curry God's favor, so to speak, by, by conforming to particular practices and, and rituals and all kinds of things. And even in our time, we hear very interesting descriptions about God. We hear about God being enraged at human beings because of their misbehavior on planet Earth, that God is more than willing to dis dispose of people if it were not for the loving intervention of Jesus. Some would say that we're always on thin ice with God, that he would be happy just to get rid of us and make five more that look just like us. 
because God can do whatever he wants to do. I, uh, I once knew a man, very nice guy. He always seemed to be living on that, on that thin layer of ice. One day he told me that he'd accidentally made an illegal left turn coming out of a shopping center and realized too late that he was crossing over two sets of double yellow lines, an illegal left turn. And uh, as he realized that he was, he was horrified, he, he was ashamed of himself, and he began to weep as he drove. And uh, his son and his son's young friend were sitting in the backseat of the car, and, and he said to them through his tears that this very thing that he had done, this is the kind of thing that will send you straight to hell. Guess what he told me? I was a little stunned, as you are, apparently. And, uh, and I said, well, w- wait a second here. What would have happened if the week before... The local city council had said, you know, we're going to change the traffic patterns on that particular street. And they sent a work crew out and they painted over the double yellow lines and replaced them with a broken white line or no line at all. If if you'd have made a left turn under those circumstances, would that still have been the criteria for sending you to hell? And he said no. So I suggested to him that he had allowed the local city officials to be the deciders of his eternal destiny (laughs) rather than God. And... uh, I think I confused him with that. (laughs) Well, John, in his letter, provides us with a way of looking at love that reorients conventional thinking about God. Instead of describing God as someone who's eternally angry, instead of framing God as someone who just requires appeasement or whose love and favor remains elusive until we do all the right things or avoid doing all the wrong things, Instead of that, John pushes God's love right to the forefront of all existence and all human endeavor when he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, these sentences are like a couple of parallel lines running alongside each other, mirroring and emphasizing something very important about God and our relationship to him. God showed his love. He sent his son. And this is love, that he loved us. God sends his son, not a biological son as we would think about it in in human terms, but rather a son in the sense that Israel was understood to be God's son, a firstborn son through whom all the families of the earth would find blessing. Jesus embodied all that Israel was ever meant to be as the agents of God's redeeming work. And in love, God sent him to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning sacrifice, that's a big image, isn't it? Jesus is pictured by John as a a sacrificial offering that, that carries the sins of the world right to the grave. Jesus lives and suffers and dies, not only on behalf of Israel, but on behalf of the whole world. Now, now some versions of the Bible use a different different language than atoning sacrifice. Some will use the word propitiation a word that suggests that, that in what has happened with Jesus, something has changed within God, perhaps an, an averting of God's wrath or even an appeasement that satisfies the offense that people have inflicted upon God. Another word used in uh, some older Bible translations is the word expiation, 
which points to something that has changed within human beings, making them acceptable to God. Now, both are good theological words, each one attempting to describe the, the effect of Jesus' death. Both words also suggest that the sending of Jesus is preceded by need, by God's need to have his anger at us averted, God's need to have the offense taken care of, or our need to be acceptable to God. But John steps aside and offers a different perspective. He claims that the sending of Jesus, a sending that is framed as atoning sacrifice, is preceded by love. John does not portray God as one who is just waiting to catch us making that illegal left turn, one who is always on the edge of anger toward the human race, a, a capricious deity who is always up to something. John shows us God as one whose love precedes everything, including our ability to love him in return. God's love is always prior to our love. At the very best, our love is secondary to the primacy of God's love. Our ability to work up feelings of love for God are, in a sense, beside the point. It's not that loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind is, is irrelevant or unimportant. Jesus made that clear to us. It's that such fragile, imperfect love as ours only comes in the wake of God's love. But loving God as a response to the primacy of God's love does have a tangible expression. And John tells us that when he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. But loving God is a kind of unique thing for us. We learn of God through the scriptures. We have varied experiences of God personally that we might testify about. We're grateful to God for the things of life. Sometimes we're even puzzled about God. We are even a little bit angry with him when things go wrong or, or violate our expectations. We have certain feelings about God, and we, we describe them in the category of love. But then again, God doesn't usually just randomly say things that offend us or make a decision on our church council that we don't like. He doesn't take a political position that we think is wrong-headed or argue for a theological view that we think should belong only to Neanderthals. Not that there's anything wrong with Neanderthals. It's a whole lot easier to say that we love God than it is to love one another. Because in our minds, sometimes we just get God to see things our way. But throughout the Bible, the work of God is demonstrated, oddly enough, through people. God's solution to the disaster that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, the, thing, the chapter that describes what we call the fall of all humanity, God's solution to that is not just to wipe the slate clean, but rather to raise up someone, Abram, who will later be Abraham, and say that through him, all through his descendants, all the families of the earth will find blessing. That's God's solution. In the story of the Exodus, God doesn't magically relocate the ancient Hebrew people from their slavery in Egypt. 
he raises up Moses to lead them out. And as things go awry through the entire history of Israel, instead of shouting at them through some kind of a cosmic megaphone, God sends prophets to speak on his behalf. And Jesus, serving as God's agent, speaks of doing only what he sees his heavenly father doing. But those works are seen and experienced by people on a very human level. And love appears to work the same way. The reality of God's love is made evident to us by the presence of his spirit within us. And that same love is demonstrated as real when we love one another. That which is unseen is now seen among us. John tells us that in this world, we are as he is, as God is. We are not God, but by his spirit and by his initiating love, we are as he is in real time, in real history, in this world. You know, there's something very compelling about the idea that through the demonstration of love that we would be as God is in the world. At the same time, there's something daunting about it because we're never quite sure if we're really up to the task. And, and we might even say that the church at large isn't doing a very good job at the demonstration of love if we base our views on what we see on social media or occasional news reports or perhaps even from some personal experiences. But of course, it's out in those marginal spaces where the love of God is usually expressed by his people. I, I've heard folks complain that our News agencies rarely report on the acts of kindness and service that are performed by groups of Christians. It seems to just miss the headlines. But to be fair, those kinds of stories don't usually generate the buzz that turns readers into customers. Scandal always sells better than service, doesn't it? But it might also be the case that many followers of Jesus are indeed faithful to his call to be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And one of those marginal spaces is right here. It's a worship gathering like this one. I think that the liturgy that we walk through together offers us a framework for expressing God's love to one another that really does help to form our lives. We come together in the quiet of this sanctuary, welcoming one another into this space that we share for worship. And we sing together, uh, turning from all the other voices that clamor for our, our attention and also for our allegiance. And we turn our faces in worship to the God who has first loved us. And we attend to the scriptures of the church, seeking to have our lives formed by the voice of God as we hear the faithful witness of the people of God throughout the ages. And then together we confess our sins, recognizing our shared weakness and kneeling in solidarity with one another and with the world. And then when we rise to our feet, we, we greet one another, not with violence or hostility, but rather with the peace of Christ. And then at the Lord's table, the Eucharist, we come empty-handed. We come as brothers and sisters who are summoned to the table by God, invited to drop all of our agendas and dine in the presence of Jesus as a family of faith. 
And finally, in benediction, we are sent back into the world to love and serve the Lord. This is our practice in demonstrating God's love by loving one another. Now, practice, of course, has two meanings, doesn't it? In, in one sense, practice is, is rehearsal. And in the family of faith, we, we practice love on one another, rehearsing it week after week so that it takes root deeply within our lives. And yet, in another sense, our practices are just the things that we regularly do. We practice love naturally and continuously. It is just the thing that we do. In practicing our love for one another, love becomes the practice of our lives, and it spills out to the people we encounter in the world. You know, demonstrating the love of God by loving one another is, is more than just a good religious idea. The ethics of our shared life in the community of faith speaks of the present reality of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that Jesus said is at hand, that it's among us, that the demonstration of love with all of its imperfection and its frailty is both sign and wonder that points to the first love of God that we will one day know in its fullness. The practice of love to which we are called resists all the caricatures that too often describe followers of Jesus, disallowing the framing of our faith in anything other than the primacy of God's love. And it opens up the possibility of the beauty of the good news of God's kingdom to be made known among us, in us, and through us for the glory of God and for the sake of the world that God loves. Amen.